and welcome to Voices from the Grassroots. This is your host, Clay Haran, coming to you from Radford, Virginia. This episode, I'll be sitting down with Tracy Howard. Tracy is the Director of Elections for Radford City, and he is the former president of the Voter Registrars Association of Virginia. I got to know Tracy over the course of several months while I was working in the city of Radford on a Get Out the Vote campaign. My experience with Tracy getting to know him has been very educational and informative, so I thought it'd be really important in the wake of the 2018 midterms to sit down with him and discuss the inner workings of our electoral democracy, exactly what goes on behind the scenes when people go and vote and some of the issues related to that. So, Tracy, I'm really happy to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Happy to. How did you initially become interested in this line of work? One of my earliest memories is a picture of my dad in the Southwest Times on the front row of a board of supervisors meeting in Pulaski County to get our road paved. And because mom and dad were very interested in elections and working through the process, working with elected officials, I'd always been interested in that. And uh, this, this just seemed like something that would be, would be interesting to do. And it, it's been interesting. If nothing else, it's been interesting. <laughs> well, and one thing that I've noticed after coming in here is how accessible the office is to the public. Which, see, which is actually a really good resource. And I have personally learned a lot from having access to your office and just being able to come in here and ask you questions about the process. So I was just wondering how important do you think it is that registrars are open and responsive and accessible to the public and to public questioning? And has it always been that way? Have registrars been this accessible in the past? They have not been this accessible in the past. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until the early 90s that registrar's offices were uh, prohibited from being in personal homes or personal offices or places of business, that they had to go to a, uh, a publicly accessible government building. We've turned 180 degrees here within the past, say, three decades or so. Uh, just for accessibility. And any registrar you would talk to in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I would certainly hope that they would be at least as open to answering questions, to explaining the law uh, um, as, as any other one. So that's something that we really strive to be, is open, accessible, completely public to any member of the public. So there's a lot of rhetoric and false claims surrounding the issue of voter fraud. I was wondering in terms of your relationship with the public, how often you have to dispel myths about the issue of every November. <laughs> every November. Um it actually came to a head probably October of sixteen, uh prior to the presidential election, we knew that the um uh some overseas bad actors were pinging the voter registration system. We were working with um, uh, uh, several state agencies in what we called our COOP, which is a continuancy of operations planning. Um, and it really came to a head. The rhetoric got so bad that year. And 
I was president of the association. This was 16, and I was president of the association at that time. We actually had to put out a press release stating that your voting machines are safe. They're never connected to the Internet. We know that these people are looking at us, but have not been successful in getting into the voter rolls or anything like that, and that we're actually your friends and neighbors here in your precinct, you know, trying to do the best we can for you guys. But uh, the rhetoric was so terrible, and that seems to have just continued on. Um, the division in D.C. actually trickles across the Potomac. It's gotten to Richmond, and now, unfortunately, it's gotten to a local level, which we have never really seen that sort of uh, just nasty, ugly rhetoric before, where it literally pits neighbors against neighbors arguing over politics. And uh, it, it saddens me, it disheartens me actually, because people are unwilling to discuss and they're very willing to yell and assert things that may not be true. And it, it's, um, it's gotten much worse the past three or four years. You can count on one hand the number of times in the state of Virginia we have found any instances of voter fraud and they always surround absentee ballots or it always surrounds voter registration, you know, registering dead people and things like that. Well, people don't understand that a lot of it is error, which that's not prosecutable. But the things that are prosecutable have been prosecuted and they're trying to put, put a stop to it but you still hear about that. In 2016, young man in Harrisonburg forged a lot of registration applications. He was actually prosecuted, went to jail for several, several months, and uh, ended up paying a huge fine, which he should have. He was registering dead people. The thing about that, though, people are still bringing that up as the Democrats are uh, doing this fraudulent voter registration even though the local elections office caught it, took it to the Commonwealth's attorney, who was the opposite party, he prosecuted it, and it was punished. And it only amounted to like 20 registration applications. Uh, you know, so that sort of thing that keeps being dredged up after it is executed, everything is taken care of, and it, it's just toxic. And you see it on Facebook all the time, and I, I, I've gotten where I just stay off Facebook. I go to look at dog pictures. You know, that's, but, um, yeah, the, the toxicity is, is really high right now. And I think a lot of the leaders in our, uh, I hesitate to call them leaders, they should be our representatives. A lot of our representatives in government are normalizing that type of behavior. In terms of the sanctity of Virginia's elections, there's been a study that's often cited from, from researchers at Northern Illinois University that found Virginia to be the second hardest state in the United States to vote in. And I was wondering what you think is specific to Virginia's voting system that apparently makes it so hard for people to vote here, or I guess would you dispute the findings of that study? I would very much dispute that study because I read that study. And that study was based on opportunity cost. And the opportunity cost was to 
basically make it as completely automatic and easy where the government took care of every voter and every voter's need. And that is not how we do things in Virginia. Not saying that that's wrong, not saying it's right, but the government cannot hold your hand all the time. At some point, a voter has to take responsibility for their own stuff. We don't follow them around and make sure that their address is correct and so forth. Um, they looked at things like automatic voter registration through DMV. Virginia doesn't do that. We're very close. We're pushing the envelope, but legally we can't do that right now. They look at things like the, um, the mail ballot, where a ballot is simply mailed to your home. And even at that, you've got a ballot right there in front of you. All you have to do is drop it in a drop box, and it's still only 75% turnout. How much easier does it need to be? What we look at in Virginia, the application consists of about seven questions, and they're all questions that you know. Your Social Security number, whether you're a citizen, your date of birth, your name, and your address, that's what we're looking for. Um, it, it really couldn't be a lot easier unless we did it for you, and that's what Virginia's resisting. But wouldn't you say that progress in voting systems is generally making it easier for people to vote or seeking to make it easier for people to vote? Yeah, absolutely, to the point that it's not so easy that fraud does then take place or that we don't have to check a name against a list or something. But name against a list worked for 400 years in Virginia, and then suddenly in 2013, we have to have a photo ID. We've got to have a picture of you. And Virginia's gone backwards in some cases like that. So would you call voter ID laws voter suppression? They are voter suppression through and through. Um, and the reason I say that, we have had several instances, and it's particularly elderly people who have lost their DMV driver's license. They don't have an ID anymore. On election day, they'll come to us looking for help. This particular gentleman lived in Pulaski County was it at, this, at this the nursing election? home. It, it, was, it uh... was election 16, actually, oh, okay. 16. This gentleman, World War II veteran, in his 90s, had lost his driver's license. Someone drive, drove him over here to get a photo ID. We can make a photo ID for any individual in Virginia except on election day. And on election day, we can only make it for the those people who are registered within our jurisdiction. I gave him the information, he simply gave up. He went back home. Rather than drive a half hour to Pulaski, the half hour back to come, come and vote. And that's the type of thing that make me just truly against photo ID. I don't agree with it. So voter ID laws in Virginia were challenged in the courts and then upheld in 2013. And a representative in the state of Virginia, William Howell, who's a Republican, stated that the case was, quote, a victory for a common sense law that protects the integrity of Virginia's elections. What do you what do you think of that argument? That that argument has been made. The problem with that is there has never been a prosecuted case of a voter impersonation in Virginia. Nobody's ever gone in and just pretended to be somebody else. If they're going to do that, they're going to do that through the absentee and the mail process. 
because it's the same reason counterfeiters don't make pennies. You can't get anywhere that way. How would you define broadly voter suppression? Voter suppression, in a broad sense, is the benefit of a group by keeping people from voting for another group. That, that's really what it amounts to. And both parties in Virginia have been guilty of this. Truly have. Uh, the bird machine was incredibly democratic. They were the ones responsible for the grandfather clause. They were the ones responsible for the poll tax. They were the ones responsible for the uh, dual roles for white and non-white people. That went away in the 60s. Um, the parties, have a, both parties have a way of penduling. So in the 60s, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and things of that nature, put the nails in the coffin for the poll taxes and the grandfather clause and all of this other suppressive measures. The Department of Justice was upholding um, the Voting Rights Act through something called preclearance for all the old oppressive states, and Virginia was one of those. And in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted the preclearance of the uh, Voting Rights Act because truly the formula was old. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But after that was taken away, then you start seeing all these suppressive tactics, shutting down polling places, um, making, uh, pulling funding away from particular neighborhoods, whether that neighborhood was um, good or bad in your estimation as to how they would vote. So you start seeing that kind of thing. You start seeing the lines forming and, and uh, uh, start seeing the ID laws come about and some of the very strict ID laws uh, in Kansas where they made you prove your citizenship before you could be registered, things of that nature. Um, and that's Chris Kobik, by the way, who was the chairman of the President's Voter Fraud Commission. He was Secretary of State in Kansas and, and developed that. You had to show a uh, um, birth certificate in order to be registered out there. So it's that sort of thing that really discourages people from registering to vote. And, you know, Virginia, even, even now, we don't allow felons to vote. They have to go through a process to have their rights restored. They're still citizens. Once they've paid their dues, turn it over, you know, let it go. But Virginia is one of five states who makes them go through a process in order for the governor to reinstate their voting rights. And, um, you know, in some ways we could do better. So you mentioned the Supreme Court case. Were you talking about Shelby uh, v. Holder? Yeah, because they, Shelby County, Texas, wasn't in existence when the uh, Voting Rights Act was put together. So they were lumped in later on, and because uh, of the formula that was used to, to find these oppressive counties, and um, they weren't even there. It was formed after that. 
and they had no history of oppression. They had no history of in, uh, segregation or anything of that nature. So they sued, and um, that's what that's what had that particular part of the Voting Rights Act overturned. So how were y'all as uh, registrars perceiving and talking about these cha- or the changes that came about through the Shelby v. Holder case? The preclearance, it accepted accepted nothing. You you had no exceptions whatsoever. You had to petition the Department of Justice to opt out of preclearance. Otherwise, even if you changed your office space, if you added a precinct, added a polling place, took away something, took away a barrier in some way, it all had to be pre-cleared. I, when I was in another office space, we had to pre-clear the wording on a new sign. And it was simply the hours. You had to, you had to pre-clear any voter registration site that you had off-premises. And it, it was an administrative and logistical burden. So for the registrars, that worked out well. But then it's the state governments who started looking for the ways to uh, find ways around things. If you're doing it right anyway, if you're not looking for a way to suppress the vote, you're, you're, you're not going to need to go through justice and all of this stuff. They, they were there to make sure that the protected classes were remained protected, which that's the good thing. The other part of it was the administration and the logistics, just the difficulty of getting any sort of change done at all. And even at that, they wouldn't say, yes, you're, you're free to do this. They would say, we interpose no objection, but it doesn't prevent a citizen from suing you because of this. So those were the types of things that allowed us to actually look for better polling places, look for better spaces, because, um, because any sort of change, that was a chilling effect on making good changes as well. You know, it, it, it kept you from making good changes because you didn't want to go through the headache of doing the administration. And it was truly a three-month-long process to get any sort of preclearance. And, and that, that's, that's something you won't read anywhere. But yeah, it, really it's fairly widely known because several counties prior to the Shelby case had opted out, which was a huge legal petitioning deal, having to prove that there was no uh, regressive tactics and things for so many number of years and all of this. And they had opted out simply to be able to do those administrative things that they needed to do without having to get the feds involved every single time. Well, in 2013, everybody was out of it. And it was a big sigh of relief just because it's it's easier to do stuff now. So just staying on the topic of voter suppression, it was found that in 2013, 39,000 names were deleted, illegally deleted from Virginia's voting roster. And I was wondering, because you were registrar during that time, what exactly it looked like from the inside and whether you could clarify exactly what happened there. Yeah, um, we get stuff from the National Change of Address database through the post office, through Social Security Administration, through uh, CrossCheck and ERIC, the um, interstate um, 
basically what they do is share data between states of people who have moved in or registered and things of that nature. And what ended up happening, the cross-check is not 100% accurate. You know, you have similar names, similar dates of birth, last four of the socials completely different, you know, things of that nature. So it didn't have enough data points to make a 100% accurate match or even a 95% accurate match at that point. So what ended up happening, it was one of the first years we were actually involved with the cross-check. And a lot of other states sent us information that some of our voters had actually registered there. Well, the guidance at the Department of Elections at the time was, if you get information from the other states that they're registered there, remove them from Virginia's list. And many of them were military individuals who were registered in the other state and had come back to Virginia, or students who moved to another state for school, had come back to Virginia, had not updated the registration, they were still registered out there, they were taken off the rolls. Now, the Brennan Center is a little bit liberal, so they made it sound as if we were just the devil, we're getting rid of all these people, it was administrative errors is really all it was. We had one individual on that list here in the city of Bradford, was military, lived here all his life. I happen to know him. Uh, was military, was out in Nebraska or somewhere like that. Had gotten a driver's license through the military out there. His name was on this list. And I called him up. Dude, did you register to vote out in Omaha, Nebraska? No, I didn't do that. Okay, that was good enough for me. I left him on. But the list was fraught with those kind of errors. And we didn't know it until after the fact when we started getting the, uh, getting the calls. And those errors were easy to rectify. They really were. Now, they don't tell you that. We fixed that. We fixed those errors. Now, one registrar in Chesterfield County, good friend of mine named Larry Hakey, ex-cop, ex, uh, kind of loud. No, he didn't do it because he recognized on his list the number of errors that were actually there. And that's, he was actually on Ra Rachel Maddow's show telling why he was not going to do what the Virginia Department of Elections told him to do at that time. And that's where all of this uh, controversy came from. So we don't use cross-check anymore. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about the city of Radford and, and, and the college student vote here in the city of Radford because college students are over half the town's population. And so what this means is that they actually have the ability to tip local elections. And in my personal experience here in Radford, some non-student residents tend to express disdain toward the student vote because they feel as if they're not actually invested in the area because a lot of students actually end up picking up and leaving after they go to college here. So I wanted to hear a little bit what you think about that issue. Oh, you name a college town. <coughs> Blacksburg, Williamsburg, Harrisonburg, uh, Richmond, anywhere, Newport News, you know, anywhere with a, a, a university or a major college. 
um, I bring to you the case of Lynchburg and Liberty. Liberty requires all of their students to register to vote, and they require them to vote on Election Day. Look at the dominant theoretical party there. Now, in Radford, Williamsburg, things like that, it, it is thought that the dominant political party is opposite. I would suggest that these are all state-supported schools that draw young people from all walks of life and support all schools of thought. And we are certain there are as many Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Greens here as there are anywhere else. It's just a matter of capitalizing on it for, you know, the the powers that be in the localities. And, um, you know, it's been said that the students turned the election here in May for our city council. That was finals week. Only about 60 students voted that we can figure based on the, the st uh, age statistics. Um, they didn't do it, but they're being blamed by one faction for doing it, and they're being thanked by the other faction for doing it. And that's the type of rhetoric we deal with. Even though there's no basis in any statistics whatsoever that says students turn that election, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the common rhetoric. They don't trust them, Clay. They don't trust them. They don't have enough life experience. They're only 18 years old. Yada, yada. They are not vested here. They don't trust them. And in small rural cities like Radford, a small town like um, Abingdon with um, uh, Emory and Henry, the schools have always been this thing unto themselves. You know, they, they've been islands that, of people who weren't from here. And it's very difficult to get people who are from here to accept the fact that yeah, there are a lot of people who are registered to vote in other areas of town who live here less time than the students do. We'll have people move in and out of some of the lower income apartments on a two, three month basis, and they get to register to vote. So yeah, co college students voting is a pretty, it's a contentious issue, and it has been in the state of Virginia and in the city of Radford, like I, well, there's to be fair, all over the country. Okay, all yeah. over the country. Yeah. Definitely um, not limited here. No, limited to here by no means. And there are still, uh, still pockets of voter suppression that really limit universities, university students. And of course, the big case came out of Texas at uh, Texas Pra Prairie, Texas A and M. Anyway, Sims versus U.S. Uh, what it was, the guy was pre-qualifying students. He was making them fill out an additional form say, stating that they were residents um, before he would allow them to attempt to register to vote. Well, that was 1972. The Supreme Court ruled on that. As things changed, there were different ways, and one of them was the law that we had in Virginia that if a person was to be a resident with domicile, in their precinct, 
there were all these qualifiers had to pay their taxes here where their parents were taxed where their personal property taxes were uh, ties to the community things of that nature and it was a list uh, pretty lengthy paragraph probably a paragraph of 100 words of um, their business pursuits where they were employed things of that nature and that was to prove domicile within the precinct and that was law in Virginia until 2009 okay yeah so what so you were being accused of suppressing the student vote in 2008 right. uh, by these different groups, the ACLU and the Brennan Center for yeah. Justice, for example. What was, what was going on with that? How, how did that get resolved and why was that an issue to begin with? What, 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 what was at stake there? In 1992, when I first took the office, the State Board of Elections at the time, the agency in charge of, of registration voting in Virginia, they trained us. They sent a trainer out here. I got two days of training. During that time, we were given short primers on what it meant to be residents. It's in the um, Constitution of Virginia. Here it is in the Code of Virginia. This is what it means. It means that you, you know, X, this is it. You have to be a resident, a domicile resident. I'd been doing it a very very similar way since that time, 1992. What happened as third-party registrations grew after Motor Voter in VRA uh, came to Virginia in 1996, third-party registrations began after that. Third-party groups started going into campuses around the state. Low-hanging fruit, right? You're going to get lots of people. So every presidential election, we'd end up with these groups out there registering voters after the presidential, they'd go away. We'd never hear again until four years later. Another group, you know, another, another. Uh, we called them the do-gooders. They're out there doing good. Um, but in the case in 2008, this group on campus was registering voters with nothing but a P.O. box. After I had spoke to them several times, we have to have real residence addresses. And these people have to be residents of Radford. This is my list. Gave them the law book. Well, we'd still get the P.O. boxes. Everyone that got a P.O. box, I'd send them a little postcard asking for their home address. That's what got me in trouble. Because I would ask for a home address, and if the little postcard came back, it was invariably Fairfax County, Virginia Beach, somewhere out of state, Washington, D.C., something like that. Can't register you, you're a resident of another state. So that's what the ACLU was jumping on me for. The Department of Elections at the time said that these actions were defensible because these people had not given residential addresses on the voter registration application, that I wasn't pre-qualifying them that this was after the fact because the information we got was bad. So after being threatened with a lawsuit every single day between September 1st and the day of the election, I went to Senator Ralph Smith and I said, Senator, this has got to stop. We've got to do something about this. He heard from me. He heard from uh, Montgomery County going through exactly the same thing. Um, Mary Washington, I'm Fredericksburg, Williamsburg, Harrisonburg, all name a college town going to the same thing. Charlottesville, 
that was their model because Charlottesville just registered everybody. They asked no questions whatsoever, and all of a sudden they're upholding the law and we're scoff laws, even though basically split, you know. So went to the Senate of Virginia uh, between Senator Ralph Smith, who was a Republican, Senator John Edwards, who's a Democrat. They crafted a plan to take all of those qualifiers out of Virginia law. I was the only person who testified at that Senate subcommittee PNE hearing. And because of my testimony, that bill went through both the Senate and the House with no opposition. Got to the governor, the governor signed it, um, and now the State Board of Elections, Department of Elections, they are enabled under Virginia law to promulgate rules and regulations. And in that year, I served on the residency task force. We promulgated the rules and regulations. A dorm address must not be questioned as a resident's address, nor any other transient addresses. If somebody gives me a motel, if a homeless person gives you a street corner, until that time, these people had a really difficult time registering in Virginia. So it's not just the students, people who live in RV, you have to have a home base. But if you have a home base, but it's got no mailbox, it's got no real, real address, you can still register to vote in Virginia. So that's, that's something that I'm, I'm pretty proud that I was a part of. I think that's progress because it had taken things that were originated with the poll tax. Things like where do you pay your taxes? Where is your occupation? What do your parents do? Those were the same category as a poll tax to prevent people from registering to vote. Now, it still says in the Constitution that you have to have domicile and place of abode within your precinct. The Department of Elections has been using residents in Virginia since that time. So as long as you are a resident of Virginia and you have a place where you can lay your head in a precinct, you can register there. So I, I like to feel like it helped open it up to a lot of people. Would you credit those groups because, that because of their protesting? Oh, yeah. Do you think that it made a difference and actually kind of oh, pushed you guys to yeah. make that change? Mm -hmm. so, so those groups accusing you of voter suppression may oh, have... I was accused of being a <laughs> Republican operative. I got death threats. <laughs> Literally, um, there were people who, all, you know, these internet message boards, this guy needs to go to jail, he needs to be put under the jail. As it turned out, this was the pivot point in Virginia that allowed every student to register in either their hometown or their college town. There was a guy here, uh, Roanoke Times, his name was Christian Trable. He was one of the opinion editors there. And he had given me hell in the newspaper. Well, a few months later, he actually had to come to the office for something. There was something else going on, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, I remember what it was. Uh, city council tried to cut my salary because the state had cut the amount of reimbursement. And he, he came down to talk to me. And he walked in, and he looked really, really sheepish. You know, just like, 
I don't know if this guy remembers me or knows who I am, but I got immediately got up from my desk, went over, and I said, Christian, I want to thank you. Surprised him. He said, what, what for? I said, the, the student registration articles. Those were cited in Senate P&E as bringing awareness to this issue. I'd been fighting this issue for 16 years, trying both ways, you know, do something about it, put it in black and white. For 16 years, finally, some of those articles caught the attention of some of the uh, House of Delegates members and Senate senators. They were carried in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And I said, I want to thank you. We, because of these, people were aware of what I was talking about when I went to a Senate P&E. Uh, I appreciate it. And he was like, oh, wow, man, I thought you were going to kill me when I walked in here. I didn't know why you jumped up from behind the desk. But, you know, I've always tried to keep an open mind to things like that because from that sort of controversy, you can get some good things done. Absolutely, and it, yeah. it, it has always made me wonder what would happen if an entire state at some point refused to show their photo ID on Election Day. You know, uh, would that be, would someone pay attention then? Not that I'm suggesting it by any means, but, you know. And that's like us within our association, the general registrars. Um, we're constitutional officers. We're paid approximately 70% of what every other constitutional officer paid. And this is the... <laughs> 1976 law book, still the same title, 24.1. This is the 2017 law book. It's increased by 300%. We're still paid exactly the same amount, just for inflation, that we were paid in the 70s. And we can't get anybody to understand that this job's gotten tough. It's gotten harder. It's more gotten complicated. more complicated. Oh, God, more complicated. Um, but they still see it as, well, an election, that's the three minutes I'm in the polling place and I vote, then I go home and watch the turnout. They, they don't see it as the months leading up to, I mean, the literal hundreds of hours that you spend getting ready for it, the 17-hour day on election day, and then the entire week afterwards jumping back into the 52 weeks' worth of voter registration. It, it never ends. It's like the mail. It never stops. You know, so uh, th 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 those kinds of things are really frustrating to the registrars of Virginia. And we've often wondered what the General Assembly do. Should we go on strike? What if we just refuse to hold a General Assembly election one odd number a year? Of course, we'd all go to jail. We'd be, you know, we'd be sharing the same cell block. But what would that do to 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 shine a bright light on something that we feel is wrong? I would love to see you, you guys know, do that. Well, Virginia's a right-to-work state. They just yeah, bring true. somebody in. You know, so. Well, that's the, if everybody does it at once, they can't replace everybody at once. That's yeah, why, yeah, that's right. Is there is there a Oh well, I, you guys are organized, like registrars. Is, is there, are you are you a part of a union? No, uh, no, no, no. We are just a, we're an educational association 
5013C uh, Corporation, which is a nonprofit corporation. So we're, um, we push for the education of the, the registrars and their staff as a group. We work with the Virginia Electoral Board Association to lobby the General Assembly. Um, we hold educational seminars and things of that nature throughout the state. And um, there for a long time, we actually did all of the training that the state of Virginia offered to voter registrars. Now that has kind of turned back. The state is beginning to do some more of that now, but we were our, our only trainers at one point. So the state budget has been shrinking and as a result, local governments have to bear the costs of the elections process in Virginia. Can you explain what is going on here? What effect that's had on y'all? Jim Gilmore ran on the no car tax platform. That was his bumper sticker, no car tax. That was actually passed in part by the General Assembly. So the localities began collecting half of the personal property tax that they were entitled to. So they had to start coming up with creative ways to make up for that. At the time, the General Assembly was doing uh, 599 funds for police. You know, they were doing library funding, they were doing school funding, they were paying 100% of our reimbursement, they were taking care of. Um, you got an election in a box, which was all of the envelopes, the poll books, everything that was needed for an election was provided by the state. When Tim Kaine went into office, and this was 2002, he made the first adjustment to the reimbursements, and at the time it was only 5%. The localities lost their mind because they were losing this 5%, not only from us, but it was appropriated in the state budget, you know, They've got a number in the state budget, but the Attorney General said that yes, the governor could amend the state budget reimbursements back to the localities. Subsequent governors have picked that up like a football and run with it. So what's ended up happening is rather than 100% reimbursement for us now, we're down to 69% reimbursement and are responsible for everything that the state used to send us in the elections in a box. And all of that is paid for, borne by the locality. So not only did they lose money from the state, they're spending money to make up for that. And that's, that's, that's what we're talking about there. Even though we're appropriated X amount of money in the state budget, the Department of Budget and Planning under the governor's and it's been, it's been both parties' governors, and I don't want to say one way or the other. Um, those governors will reduce reimbursements payments back to the localities. So that's, that's what the localities are griping about. And it's been ongoing since 2002. So when the first funding cuts started, okay, well, everybody here, all the constitutional officers, every office, you've got to reduce by 5%. Give us line items where you can reduce by 5% and 5% overall. Okay, we, we can suck that up. You know, that's, that's stamps for us at the time. Um, 2007, when things started really dropping off, 
okay, you're going to need another 5% out of yours because we're losing 5% from you. I was like, uh, no, I'm, I'm just not going to do it anymore because my budget was bare bones at that time. We couldn't even afford, couldn't afford letterhead. It was like pulling teeth to, uh, to get printing paper because everything was run by the city manager in such a way that you had to get permission to spend any money. So when he questioned us about the contract we had with the voting machine technician, voting machine custodian at that time, and asked, uh, asked us, um, well, do we have to have this election? It was a primary. Well, yeah, I'm afraid so. What it was, the, a city manager. Now, he was from Georgia, which is a home rule state, which the question was actually fair because two or th uh, the offices there had no opposition. Okay? So uh, if, if there's no opposition, we don't have to have the election. Do we? Well, in Virginia, yeah, because everybody gets an opportunity to write in. So I told him yes, and he said, well, I'm, I'm not going to pay for it. <laughs> and I, I literally thought he was joking. So I was, I was standing there laughing in the man's face, and he says, well, I'm not paying for it. Do you understand? If you want to pay for it, you can do that. Right then and there, I decided. I told him, I said, go ahead and zero the budget out. Just zero it out. Don't give me any money. And we'll see who pays for the elections. And that... That was a fair stance. In 2009, then, they attempted to cut my salary, and I proved to them in code they couldn't do that. So I've not been a, I wasn't a favorite of that particular mayor or that particular city manager, which was a previous city manager. He actually got convicted of something and went to Tennessee. Um, so I wasn't a favorite of those. But it proved the point that it didn't matter what you put in a budget elections had to go on, they had to be paid for, and they were going to be paid for because they needed to be done well. And that's what we can't get through to the General Assembly. Every time they cut us, the localities try to cut us, it affects us. We have to pull officers of election, we can't pay for ballots, we can't pay for our printing, the voter cards, uh, mailing it, notifications, things like that. And it, uh, it's getting to the breaking point. It truly is. I'm just blown away that America calls itself the greatest democracy that's ever existed, yet states and local governments are scrounging for funds to keep their elections departments afloat. That's, exactly that's, right. that's ridiculous. Until a couple of years ago, there was a registrar's office uh, in Virginia that was in a building with no running water. She had to go across the street to use the bathroom. That was Highland County. Um, there are, I was stuck in the basement of the rec hall for 10 years. First 10 years I was registrar, we were down in the basement of the rec hall because it was free. The building was literally falling down. Stuff was falling through the ceiling, things like that. So that, that's the attitude that local governments have toward elections because you only work one day a year. We're trying to turn that attitude around that we're no longer just file clerk. We're no longer just somebody who uh, types names into a system. We're running a democracy. But, you know, to an elected official, an election is their campaign. And they know how to do that, and they were good at it because all of them got elected to something. To us, an election is 
the nuts and bolts of it, the, the stuff you do before, the stuff you do after. It's making sure that everybody can vote in a timely manner, making sure that all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. We don't care who wins as long as we don't have to recount, you know? But that's, that's the difference in the, uh, the vocabulary. We think of elections one way. Elected officials think of elections as, as their campaign. If the public were aware of the background, what went on throughout the year and not just election day when they're watching the news and the results, all of a sudden, you know, they're magically there. Mm -hmm. If they knew what went on, if, if they realized the, the volume of law that we work under has, has tripled, that the number of federal laws that we work under has, has increased threefold since 1992, since I've been here. There were no real federal laws that you worked under at that point. Everything was state-driven. And now you've got HAVA, you've got UACAVA, you've got NVRA, um, uh, what, what are some of the other, ADA. Um, those federal acts all affect us and the way we're able to do things. Well, we try to do the best we can with what we have to work with, but the driver for a good election is being able to pay for a good election. Now, we have a, we have a saying amongst us in election, election land, you think a good election is expensive, wait until you have a bad one. Because you're going to pay a lot more for those lawyers than you ever would have for the correct number of paper ballots. And that's happened in Virginia, where an electoral board was so strapped of cash that they scrimped on the number of ballots. Happened in Lynchburg two years ago for a special, um, special election for House of Delegates. They scrimped on the ballots because they were so strapped for cash. It was a decision between the ballots and the officers of election. They went with the officers. They ran out of ballots. Got sued. Cost a ton of money in litigation when they could have doubled up on their ballots, had plenty. But those are the kind of decisions we're having to make. How can, like, how can we be a part of something that, that makes our election system better? Like, how can we support our registrars and just, like, the health of our election system? Yeah. And, and, and ask for higher, or more funding, yeah. more prioritization in budgets. That's it exactly. I think it's because uh, the legislators don't hear it from their constituents. They don't. They they hear it from us, but they're only hearing the 33 of us. You know, that's, that's number of counties and cities in Virginia. They don't hear it from constituents. Constituents are concerned about their insurance, their health insurance. Um, you know, any myriad of things. Elections, though, are the basis of every core service in the United States, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and in the city of Radford. They are the core service that allows the other core services. Otherwise, it would all be state-run, as in Venezuela, former Soviet Union, everything, China. It would all be state-run, and you would get exactly what the state told you you could have. Because the United States has free elections, and in Virginia we've been doing it for 400 years, we're pretty good at it, 
the people are in charge. And the people who make the loudest noise about a particular issue, Medicare expansion in last year's Virginia General Assembly, for instance, the people who make it a priority for their representatives, that becomes their representative's property. And people take elections in the United States for granted. That's why we have the lowest turnout of any developed country, even though we've been doing elections for 400 years. They're, they're simply taken for granted. What's going to happen if there were no longer elections, and then how would you discuss your issues with your representatives? And that's what people need to think of. Because the election's more than the 10 minutes there in the polling place. Elections are all year long, and your freedom depends on them. I mean, I hate to put that harsh a point on them, but the freedom of our country depends on people being involved, taking an interest, and voting. And that's, that's what we do, and we're truly all that, that passionate about it. So that, that's it. Okay, so people should go, go ahead and call their their reps and oh, say, yeah. "Hey, give your department, get, you know, give Department of Elections more money." Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, yep yeah. absolutely. Because when it becomes the people's priority, it then becomes the legislative priority. And that was Tracy Howard, the voter registrar in the city of Radford. And this is your host Clay signing out. Thanks for tuning in.